recorded live in the Lava Lamp Lounge. It's somewhere in between a radio zine. News, music, culture, stories, and more. This show is what we make of it, and hopefully you'll join us in the fun, too. Now let's get started. And welcome to our pilots. This is episode zero. Are we cleared for a landing? No matter how much forethought I give to the action, I never manage to actually walk to the driver's side of the car when I first walk out to my car. I only recently learned how to drive in the first place. What business would I have on the driver's side of the car? Certainly it's some sort of mistake. I'm actually putting something in the driver's seat or in the little compartment in the door, little little slidey thing there where you kind of put little notes and stuff. I must be putting something there for someone. I, I, I couldn't be driving this car. I couldn't be getting into it. I couldn't be turning the key and running the pedals. What? what, what how? Why? Where, what? There's something about this conundrum in my mind manifests in a way where I just walk to the passenger side instinctively like it's where I belong. The car that I drive actually is a tiny little thing and uh, it's really not much of a car uh, when you really get right down to it. Uh, It's very low to the ground. I mean, it is a four-door, but that's about it. Um, It's small by the standards of 20 years ago. Let's just say that. And uh, when I look at it, there's a part of me that can't even understand it as my vehicle. It looks like someone's car in our driveway was just parked there and they're visiting and they must be in the bathroom they're going to be out shortly and maybe we'll send them off with some water and they'll hit the road and then i can get back to planning my walk to wherever it is i need to go but sooner or later i have to actually make the point that it is my car and then i have to weirdly shudder in that kind of way where I acknowledge that I own a car and, well, you know, we continue on down that road of uh, realization after realization after realization. I never learned to drive as a teenager. I tried, honestly, Uh, but I I, I guess it just wasn't for me. You know, a couple of... uh, Incidents, we'll just say, uh, really steered me away from the entire notion that driving was going to be something I wanted to do. <laughs> uh, and I was incredibly lucky. I mean, you know, when I was in high school, I lived in Cottage Grove. You could walk across that town in those days in about 20 minutes. Uh, and then when I lived in Eugene, the buses ran everywhere all the time. You could go 
all night long. It was really kind of a thing, and I got pretty used to the idea of just being able to hop on and be about 15 minutes away from whatever it was I needed to do. Eugene itself wasn't all that huge to begin with. You could probably walk across town in an hour, so uh, to be honest, I did a lot of walking too. But, you know, if you wanted to be mobile for work or whatever, the buses were there and very quick and Pretty soon I became proficient enough to never need a car. Portland worked out kind of in the same way, in that while I lived there, the buses were great. I never needed almost any other kind of transportation, and I was lucky enough to have a nice group of friends that understood that I was the weirdo from a small town that never learned to drive, and so I got a lot of sympathy rides from a lot of people. But at some point... When we moved to Salem and I tried to use the buses here, it became very, very clear that I needed to learn to drive. Not only that, but uh, there was the added problem of saving my relationship with my wife in that her having to constantly drive my to every little thing that I ever needed to do was not exactly the way I wanted to have to frame the rest of our relationship. Uh, and so uh, I made some efforts, I took the driving test and failed and got very discouraged. And, uh, well, time passed. There isn't, like, some weird secret to how I actually finally learned to drive. Uh, no magic MacGuffin that uh, was uh, suddenly gifted to me that uh, opened my eyes to the ways that driving can work for me. Uh, nothing like that. I uh, cleaned a friend's apartment for a uh, trade, and they taught me to drive <laughs> over the summer when they were off because they work as a teacher. Thank you so much, Rebecca. You are amazing. And, uh, well, the rest is history. I learned enough from her to start practicing enough to get the permit. I drove around with the permit long enough to get some real experience and took the final test and passed. They gave me a piece of paper at the end of that day, and I was making mistakes, scaring my wife and getting pulled over by the police by the end of the night. It was actually pretty funny. I had been at work and had, had driven there. It was the first time that I had driven there. It was kind of cool. And I was coming home, and, you know, the parking lot where I worked was very well lit. And it's like my you know, kind of first time at night. I haven't really done much night driving at all. So I'm, you know, getting things ready, kind of still super cautious about all the stuff I'm doing and a little nervous. And so I'm still a little shaky behind the wheel, but I, I know what I'm doing enough to wait quite a while before I get out into the road. My house is like five minutes from where I was working at the time, so I just head on down the road like nothing's going on. I mean, all the lights are on in the streets and whatnot, so I mean, it is bright. And I'm cruising, doing my thing, and then the police lights come on. And I am terrified. First time, of course, that, uh, uh, well, I mean, I've been in a car when the police have pulled someone else over, but this is uh, my first day with my license, and it's my first time getting pulled over. So I am very frightened. 
I'm thinking to myself that uh, it's over. Uh, I had it for one day, and it's gone, and I will never drive again. And uh, the officer comes over. I hand over my paper license that they give you at the DMV on the day that you pass the test, and they say, we'll mail you your real license. And uh, he looks at it, and he looks at me, and uh, he says, is this your first day driving? (laughs) So it goes. So it goes. After he reminds me that I might want to turn my lights on when I'm driving in the evening, uh, he gives me a uh, healthy dose of, you get one, sir. And, uh, well, I toss my wallet, my ID, and everything off into the passenger side, the place that I've been walking to over and over and over again, in the hopes that I can just get the two more blocks to my house without any further incident. Driving on nine, I sure miss you. Pass the motel, looking at the pines. Driving on nine, looking I certainly didn't call it this when I was in college, but beginning somewhere around 2004, when I was attending PSU and looking for ways to stay organized as a new student who had never been to college and was in my 30s kind of scrambling to figure out what freshmen do their first years and all of that, uh, I bought a package of index cards and very quickly began adopting what Merlin Mann began to call the hipster PDA. Now, my version of it included basically a handful of cards, one paperclip, and a pen, and essentially I would just write down all of my homework assignments on one card and due dates on the other side of the card across from the homework assignment and probably put them in order of due date, something like that. Very simple. But it it ended up being a tool that I valued quite a bit. And so I thought, in honor of uh, Merlin, who has been an inspiration for quite a number of things, uh, that we should talk a little bit about the utility of the hipster PDA and why it is something that you might want to consider uh, for yourself. Now, uh, I mean, as I mentioned, it is a very simple device. You need index cards, (laughs) you need a pen, and you need as many paper clips and or binder clips or whatever as you want. And the idea here, I mean, the rubber band would work too, actually. The idea here is that you need a place to write things down. You need a place to look when you're trying to figure out what to do next and you need a place where you can quickly kind of reshuffle things when you're in a thinking, planning, uh, brainstorming kind of mode. And so uh, the index cards work excellent for exactly that. Uh, I usually have one card that is a list of kind of like the 
actions that I want to take throughout the day. Um, I, I, I've chosen to start calling it that versus a to-do list, which, I mean, certainly that's essentially what it is. Uh, but uh, calling something a to-do list almost has this implication of, and if you don't get it done, the guilt will be tremendous. And an action list is really kind of evident because there's only so many actions you can do in a day. So when you don't complete them all, you there's a kind of built-in thing, well, these actions will then be taken tomorrow. So uh, um, I, I think that the distinction there is not only helpful for people who are maybe struggling with why to-do lists are, uh, well, difficult to use, but uh, you know, language can really make all the difference. Uh, anyway, uh, what kind of cards do I have? Well, let's see. I have a card that's like my action list, things that I want to do. Um, I have another list of uh, things I want to buy. So if I am sitting around working on something and I realize, oh, I need X, I write it down because uh, sometimes you forget that stuff. And then when you're actually ready to go shopping, you don't have a shopping list. So I have a list of things to buy. Um, I also have a list of addresses. And this is probably going to be something where it's like a temporary spot because most of the time these end up back in the um, uh, database that I've created for addresses. But you know, you, you while you're working, sometimes you come across an address that you need to save and then I write it down and then, oh no, you know, what do I uh, do? Well, you know, there it is. Uh, and then I have a lot of other kind of random cards in the back. These are cards that I've scribbled like notes on, passwords, email addresses, uh, I gave to somebody because they wanted to write something for me. And so I had them write it on there and then I added it to the back of my pile. Uh, the list goes on and on. So, and, and then at the very, very end, I have a stack of unused blank cards. Now, um, one thing that I do like to do with this uh, when I'm brainstorming and planning is that I will have like the mind dump kind of situation. I'll just pull out a card and I'll start writing and it's just whatever's on my mind, get it all out. Uh, another version of that is to write uh, all of the things that I think I need to accomplish on a card because that's sometimes very different than what's on your actions list. Like sometimes what you're thinking in the moment can be more pressing and, 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 and more important. And so writing those things down, you can weigh the two against your action list and see if it works. The last thing that I like to do with my cards, and I, and I think that's gonna be it for today, is that uh, if I'm trying to figure out the order to do something, if I'm planning some move, if I'm planning a project, if I'm planning some a list of actions that I need to accomplish or, or, or something like that, having several blank cards kind of aligned on the table in front of me helps visualize where I want to put these in order because I can write one thing at the top, kind of shift it around, say, okay, well, actually, I need to do this first because this thing happens before everything else happens, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and I think that uh, visually with index cards, you can do that very quickly. I prefer the kind of you know standard three by five size card with lines on the front. Usually I end up getting the ones with the red line at the top just because those are pretty standard. I wanna point out that the particular kind and the way that you organize your cards and all that kind of stuff is absolutely 
up to you and my way of doing it is kind of not relevant <laughs> uh, in the same way that I think that uh, you know a pen is not going to solve your problems when you're trying to figure out how to get writing done uh, and all that kind of stuff I don't think that the kind of cards or the way that you use them or whatnot is is the key here but what I think index cards really did for me was kind of shifted my thinking outside of my own head and into a place where I could manipulate it in a different way. And that's a powerful idea. It's not exactly for everybody, obviously. People work differently and, and think differently in other places. And so whatever works for you, please do it. But uh, I just want to hip you to the idea, the notion that maybe index cards, this kind of physical tangible out in the world thing could be the, the solution that you're looking for if you're trying to shake up the way you think about stuff uh, certainly uh, there are a lot of different hazards about writing things on an external source you can lose them very quickly and then of course the idea is gone but is that any safer than having an idea in your head that slips away that you can't remember I mean, you kind of have the same risk, and at least with the index cards, you have a chance of finding that card again. And I think that that right there is uh, sells enough of the idea of what's valuable about index cards. So yeah, that's a little bit of a nerd tip here uh, that is working for me around the office. Uh, and if you have any thoughts about index cards or would like to uh, uh, tell me about the way you use them, uh, please uh, write us, uh, austinrich at gmail.com would love to find out uh, exactly how these work for you. 1692, Cotton Mather Newsreel. Oh, 1939, Tacoma, Washington, which, where are you now that I am growing toward you? Once my body occupied a child's space, and door had a large meaning to them and were almost human. Opening a door meant something in 1939, and the children used to make fun of you because you were crazy and lived by yourself in an attic across the street from where we sat in the gutter like two slum sparrows. We were four years old. I think you were about as old as I am now, with the children always teasing and calling after you. The crazy woman! Run! Run! The witch! The witch! Don't let her look you in the eyes. She looked at me. Run, help, run. Now I'm beginning to look like you with my long hippie hair and my strange clothes. I look about as crazy in 1967 as you did in 1939. Little children yell, Hey, hippie, at me in the San Francisco mornings like we yelled, Hey, crazy woman, at you plodding through the Tacoma twilights. I guess you got used to it, as I've always gotten used to it. As a child, I would always hang my hat on a dare. Dare me to do anything, and I'd do it. Ugh. Some of the things that I did following, like a midget, Don Quixote, trails and visions of dares. We were sitting in the gutter doing nothing. Perhaps we were waiting for the witch or anything to happen that would free us from the gutter. We had been sitting there for almost an hour. Child's time. I dare you to go up to the witch's house and wave at me out the window, my friend said, finally to get things going. I looked up at the witch's house across the street. There was one window in her attic, facing down upon us like a still photograph from a horror movie. Okay, I said. You've got guts, my friend said. 
I can't remember his name now. The decades have flighted off my memory, leaving a small empty place where his name should be. I got up from the gutter and walked across the street and around to the back of the house where the stairs were that led to the attic. There were gray wooden stairs, like the old mother cat, and went up three flights to her door. There were some garbage cans at the bottom of the stairs. I wondered what garbage can was the witch's. I lifted up one garbage can lid and looked inside to see if there was any witch's garbage in the can. There wasn't. The can was filled with just ordinary garbage. I lifted up the lid to the next garbage can, but there wasn't any witch's garbage in that can either. I tried the third can, but it was the same as the other two cans. No witch's garbage. There were three garbage cans, and there were three apartments in the house, including the attic where she lived. One of the cans had to be her garbage, but there wasn't any difference between her garbage and the other people's garbage. So... I walked up the stairs to the attic. I walked very carefully, as if I were petting an old gray mother cat nursing her kitties. I finally arrived at the witch's door. I didn't know whether she was inside or not. She could have been home. I felt like knocking, but that didn't make any sense. If she was there, she'd just slam the door in my face or ask me what I wanted and I'd run screaming down the stairs. Help! Help! She looked at me! The door was tall, silent, and human, like a middle-aged woman. I felt as if I were touching her hand when I opened the door delicately, like the inside of a watch. The first room in the house was her kitchen, and she wasn't in it. But there were twenty or thirty vases and jars and bottles filled with flowers. They were on the kitchen table and on all the shelves and ledges. Some of the flowers were stale, and some of the flowers were fresh. I went inside the next room, and it was the living room, and she wasn't there either. But again, there were twenty or thirty vases and jars and bottles filled with flowers. The flowers made my heart beat faster. Her garbage had lied to me. I went inside the last room, and it was her bedroom, and she wasn't there either. But again, the twenty or thirty vases and jars and bottles filled with flowers. There was a window right next to her bed and it was the window that looked down on the street. The bed was made of brass with a patchwork quilt on it. I walked over to the window and stood there staring down at my friend who was sitting in the gutter looking up at the window. He couldn't believe that I was standing there in the witch's window and I waved very slowly at him and he waved very slowly at me. Our waving seemed to be very distant traveling from our arms like two people waving at each other in different cities, perhaps between Tacoma and Salem and our waving was merely an echo of their waving across thousands of miles. Now the dare had been completed, and I turned around in the house, which was like a shallow garden, and all my fears collapsed upon me like a landslide of flowers as I ran screaming at the top of my lungs outside and down the stairs. I sounded as if I had stepped in a wheelbarrow-sized pile of steaming dragon When I came screaming around the side of the house, my friend jumped up from the gutter and started screaming too. I guess he thought that the witch was chasing me. We ran screaming through the streets of Tacoma, pursued by our own voices, like a 1692 Cotton Mather newsreel. This was a month or two before the German army marched into Poland. (laughs) 
That's going to do it for us this week here on the program. Something in between a radio zine. The pilot episode. Episode zero. Contained stories written by Austin Rich and Richard Brodigan, including The Passenger Side, Hipster PDA, and 1692 Cotton Mather Newsreel. This episode was produced by Austin Rich in the Lava Lamp Lounge and was assembled using only the finest in 20th century technology. In the long-standing tradition of most zines, there is an open submission policy here. If you have a story that you'd like to send in, read, or just be a part of the show, why not drop a line to austinrich at gmail.com. That way we can sort out how you can get your story onto the radio. That's going to do it for us this week. You guys are wonderful. You guys are beautiful. Without you, there would be no program. Be seeing you.